Right, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for um, just being with us, Lord. Um, and you just show yourself so powerfully in so many uh, different ways. Um, and I'm just reflecting on that song uh, you say. And there's so many different things that come to tell us that we aren't worthy of your love, dear Lord. But I pray that the Holy Spirit that's in us is so powerful that we can overcome all the things that tell us that you don't care for us. Even the things that are rooted deeply um, in our family stories. Uh, so be with us this morning. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so like I just said, I'm kind of a like pop culture junkie. Um, TVs, movies, comics, uh, things like that. And if you are like me, if you have any like favorite TV show or something like that, you know inevitably at some point in the course of a series or a season, uh, there's a flashback episode, right? There's this flashback episode, and it usually um, is a way for the writers and producers of the show uh, to give you like much-needed backstory or content as it pertains to the characters in the show. Um, it's a way to kind of let you know what happened before the series started, and it kind of gives you like those aha moments like, oh, that's why this character is like this, or that's why this character isn't so nice, or this is why this uh, person makes these um, decisions. And so if you haven't noticed, we spent a lot of our time in Second uh, Samuel, and today we're jumping back to first. Uh, because for me, this is part of a, a flashback type of moment in the life um, of David. Because we've been spending some time talking about um, this moment that he had with Bathsheba, Bathsheba uh, that started with the decision that he made on the roof. But the reality of the fact is that that decision that he made that day when he was hanging out didn't start because this didn't start when he called off work that day. That the decisions that King David made in that moment I believe was a convergence of many different things that happened over the course of his life um, that I believe even harken back to the moment that he was called. Because David, like many of us, aren't just uh, the sum total of the decisions that we make. Because part of it is that we have to think about that a lot of the ways that we think and a lot of the things that we do are the results of the families that we were brought up in. Our good habits, our bad habits, our baggage, our scars, all of those things go back as far as our families of origin, the places in which we were born. And some of those things that shaped our households were shaped by households that came generations before us. I think about even my smallest habits. You know, I used to, I had this really interesting relationship with my dad uh, most of my life. But as an adult, when I lived on the South Side, I realized that so much of what I did was shaped by what he did. I looked up and I realized I was banking at the same bank that he banked. I went to the same car wash that he went to. That my, my grocery runs looked pretty similar to the grocery runs that we had growing up as a kid. I was so shaped by the things that he did. My dad, my stepmother used to always cringe at the fact that my dad used so much salt. Whenever, no matter what she did to like flavor the food, and my stepmother was an awesome cook. Whenever he sat down to the table, he grabbed the salt and he would just season his food before he tasted it. 
And guess what? I do the same thing. So much of who I am is shaped by the, the household that I was grown up in. And David uh, was no different. And if you know anything about David's lineage that stretches all the way back uh, to Abraham, you realize that David, David was in the lineage of liars. Right? Abraham wasn't the most honest person. God still used him. But Abraham had issues. We know that that Rebecca and Isaac had the rivalry going on between the, between their kids and all the dishonest ways that they they went about making sure their favorite kid had what they wanted. Gosh, and Jacob, Jacob, whose name means trickster, uh, who was very very dishonest, but still somehow the lineage of kings passes through their family. And let's not talk about favoritism. Because the, the theme of favoritism is so rampant throughout the early scriptures and just the effects that it had. Because Abraham favored Isaac. And Rebekah favored Jacob. And Isaac favored Esau. And Jacob favored Rachel over Leah. And Jacob favored Joseph and later Benjamin. And how that favoritism created sibling rivalries. This is kind of like my mom favors me and how my sister. It's a good thing they're not here because she won't ever tell them, but I'm known, right? You just, if you're the favorite kid, you know it, right? Anyway, but, 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 but that favoritism kind of creates tension in the household and sibling rivalries and, and some of the things that are born out of these things just pass on and pass on. And so we realize that for generations upon generations, these these habits, these 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 lies, this this honesty, this favoritism and all these different things have made their way to David, the the shepherd who would be king. And part of the problem as it pertains to these generational things that get passed on is that a lot of times we don't want to discuss them. We don't want to discuss the family baggage. We, we don't want to discuss the family secrets. We don't want to discuss these things and so they, they stay hidden. They stay locked behind doors. And we think that maybe because we don't talk about them, they'll go away, not realizing that they shape us so deeply that even though we may not acknowledge them, they kind of come out of us and how we live, how we interact in our relationships, how we raise our kids. And so we may want to ignore them physically and not talk about them, but they, they shape us and then they shape our families and then they continue to go on and on. And so not talking about them, not acknowledging them, doesn't necessarily make it go away and fix the problem. It kind of just ensures that that baggage gets passed on to the next generation. And so we even see in this text, in a couple different ways, how not dealing with our baggage and not dealing with our stuff inevitably forces us to continue to make bad decisions because most of the time when we carry this baggage, it, it kind of shapes in us this perpetual grief, this perpetual shame that continues to shape what we do. I think the first example that we see is in uh, chapter 16, verse 6. 
It says when they came, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But even to understand Samuel's thought process, we need to go back to the end of chapter 15, verse 35, where it says this. It says, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Where we have found ourselves at this point in the text is that God has rejected Saul as king. What God continues to see in Saul was this arrogance and this disobedience that let him know that no matter what he did, Saul would always do what Saul thought was best. And being the king over God's people, one of the things that has to be the main characteristic is the willingness to follow God's instruction. And what Saul showed over and over and over again was that he did not have that ability. And so as we go into chapter 16, what we find is Samuel, the prophet, grieving over the fact that he was part of the, 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 the part of the choosing of Saul as king and felt some responsibility for all of the mistakes that Saul had made. And it's said that at this point, Samuel grieved deeply the fact that he had chosen Saul. And when God made it very clear that the anointing was leaving Saul and that Saul would no longer have the blessing as king, Samuel grieved. And it goes on to say that Samuel, at that point, no longer had any more contact with Saul. How many of us is that our approach? Is that we think that maybe no contact, maybe avoidance of the problem will make it go away. But what we see is that because Samuel refused to deal with the grief, because the scripture said he was grieving, because he didn't deal with the grief that he had over the decision that he had made to choose Saul as king, that as he was preparing to make the choice of the next king, he was looking at the same characteristics that he had seen in Saul, which means that he was going down the same road that he had already been down before. And part of the problem, brothers and sisters, is that we will often make the same mistakes if we don't learn from the past. It says in verse 6, he says, when they came, he looked on Eliab. Eliab was the oldest son of Jesse, and he thought, surely the Lord has anointed him, because Eliab was was tall. Eliab kind of stood out the same way that Saul stood, stood head and shoulders above the rest. And so he was looking for the physical characteristics that he thought made a good king. Not considering that, you know what? We've been down this road before. Maybe we shouldn't go about it again. That Samuel was very close to making a similar mistake. And part of the problem that we have with generational curses and things of that nature is because too often times we try to move beyond them without acknowledging what they have done to us and to our families. 
And when scripture talks about the sins of a father being visited on the sons and his sons, sons and for generations to come, it's not this curse that says, oh, Leslie, you've sinned. And so now your kids are going to pay the price. But what it is alluding to is the fact that sin and shame deform us so much that if we don't deal with it, it shapes every single thing that we do to the point that the way that we are shaped shapes how we raise our kids. The way that we the way that we have learned to cope, we pass those same coping mechanisms on to our children and to our family because I don't want to deal with the pain of having the tough conversations with going through therapy or just sharing my hurts and my scars. I try to live as if they don't matter, but it comes out in everything I do. You ever interacted with somebody who you can tell was going through something, but they couldn't? That their, their pain is so palatable, their, their, their insecurity is so palatable, their hurt is so visible, but they have yet to do the work to acknowledge what is happening inside of them. And so it, it interacts in every aspect of their life. And brothers, this is, I think that we have a responsibility to ourselves to ask the tough questions, to do some of the hard work, to dig up some of the stuff that we've had to sweep or try to sweep under the rug. But not just for our sake, but for the sake of the generations to come. Because one of the things that we neglect to think about is, yes, maybe we have avoided some pain by acting like we don't have any problems. But we're just passing it down the road. I'm going to give you a a, a personal example. I didn't know my mom was going to be here today. I'm going to talk about her. I didn't clear this with her, so I might be in trouble. I'm just going to (laughs) apologize right now. I'm so sorry. I thought I was going to get away with it. Uh... It looks like I'm not. God has a way. Uh, (laughs) But I categorize myself as a holiday Scrooge. I just don't do holidays. I I don't like them. Um, And it caused tension in my marriage because my wife is the complete opposite. Her family is like one of those families that like find a reason to celebrate Thursday, like, oh my God, it's Thursday, let's throw a party. Um, That's not my thing. As a matter of fact, before we started dating, I didn't even come out on the holidays, like Christmas, Thanksgiving, I like put my phone up, I just like go to like Blockbuster or Hollywood video and get whatever the latest rom-com was and like convince one of my friends to bring me a plate and not like sitting home eating food and, like, watching sad romantic movies. Like, that was just what I did. I don't like holidays. And at some point, I kind of start, like, digging and uncovering stuff. Part of it stemmed back to, like, the fact that I had pain around, that my birthday never really got celebrated, right? And all these disappointments around um, my birthday. Nobody ever really made a big deal. I think, as a matter of fact, this past birthday, when I turned 39 a couple months ago, was, like, the first time I had, like, a party. Um, and so that just kind of like stemmed over in every part of my life. And I realized that I had a little bit of like 
bitterness or whatever toward my parents uh, for it. Until I asked them, I had separate conversations with both parents, and they both had very different stories around why they didn't do birthdays the way that I thought they should be done. My mom shared with me that because she had so many brothers and sisters, that they didn't do individual birthday parties for everybody. They kind of did one birthday celebration for all the siblings at one party. They kind of tried to hit the middle of the year, which happened to be closer to my old my uncle's birthday. Um, and so for her, like birthdays never really seemed, you know, what I'm saying special because it was like, oh, we're celebrating everybody at the same time. So she just never made a big deal out of it. She always told me happy birthday. She never forgot my birthday, but it was just never like the party and the cake and the ice cream and the you know, bicycle with the horn or whatever, or whatever I wanted, the Xbox or whatever. It was never, you know, a big deal. My dad had a very different story. Um, my dad was about three years old when his mom died. And it just so happened that she died a couple days before his fourth birthday. So the funeral was the day or so after he turned four. And so for him, Birthdays was just this painful thing that reminded him of the death of his mother. And so he just never did them. And so all these years, I was carrying this resentment and I was taking it personally that my, that my family never celebrated me or celebrated birthdays the way I thought like made me feel special. But it wasn't until I was an adult, well until my adult years, that I understood that my parents both carried baggage and pain from their childhoods that shaped how they did birthdays. But the thing was, for me, that turned in not to not just a, 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 a resentment toward birthdays, but holidays in general. That when I got married, my wife was all excited about cooking turkeys and doing birthday parties, and I just didn't want to do it. And she had to kick and drag and pull until I fought enough to where she just would kind of go without me. But then what I realized is that because I hadn't worked through that stuff, what I was also doing was starting another pattern in my household of people not feeling celebrated. So when my daughter would come like, ah, oh, because she's like five months before her birthday, she's like, what are we doing for my birthday? What are we doing for my birthday? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And I'm like, come on, man, it's six months away. <laughs> it's, it's five months away. It's four months away. It's three months away. It's two months away. It's next week. And having to, having to work through my own issue so that my issue didn't become their issues and didn't become their kids' issues. And that's hard. Even as I, I, I approach my, my marriage and, and having separate conversations with my parents about their different uh, rationales for their split. And it's one of those moments when you get old enough and you feel free enough to ask your parents the hard questions because you're like, okay, I can't be put on punishment. They can't cut me off financially. So if they get mad, I'm good. So I, so I waited a while. But I think that the reality for us, brothers and sisters, is that it's not just an individual relational thing. But I think that it pours into how we do church. What, what are the conversations that we are afraid to have as a church? What is, what is the baggage that we carry as a congregation? 
that we don't that we don't want to address that we just kind of hope goes away. What what are the things that we that we refuse to call out? That may be uncomfortable, that may be tough, that may be hard, but very much set us up as a church for the future. Because what I think about is what type of legacy that we're leaving for folks like Daniel Casey, who's away at school, who my prayer is if the Lord leads him back here, that he'll come back to a place that's not just healthy financially, but that's healthy emotionally and spiritually. Because we're handing off the church to the Daniel Casey's and the Jason Lee's and the and the Aiden's and the Sarabis and all the other kids who are running around here right now who will be our pastors and our church treasurers and our church secretaries and our leaders and our worship pastors. And the health of the church that we pass on is centered around how we're able to look at the baggage that we have now and talk about the problems that we have now and uncover the things now and work through them now. Samuel needed to, had to work through his grief. Because he hadn't, he was very close to making the same mistake that he had made before. But thankfully, God intervenes. And when you look at verse 7, it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God was saying, Listen, Samuel, you're about to make the same mistake. You're looking at the physical attributes. Yes, Eliab, the oldest brother, looks like he's going to be a great king. He's tall. He's 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 muscular. He fits the physical stature. But I'm looking at the heart. Not just this kind of heart and emotional way, but the way that the Bible talks about heart, it talks about it in the way of like wisdom and decision making and the way that the person lives their life. What he was saying is that leadership, the next leader of the kingdom had to be somebody who lived out their faith in a way that was very tangible and very visible. See, too many times we look on the outward things and associate moral attributes with physical characteristics. And I think in the same way, that's also how we decide ministry. One of the one of the biggest arguments that I've had amongst my other peers in ministry is this. There 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 is this 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 habit that we have when we're doing ministry, right, to reach out to those who are less than. However we describe less than because there's this this unspoken sense that those with resources don't necessarily have a lack or some need for Jesus in their life. So we go to underprivileged neighborhoods. We 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 donate money, we do those things which are very kingdom minded and very needed. But what happens is we look at those who are able to donate or give monetarily just as resources, not realizing that they also need the power and presence of God in their life. And so we have decided, even in how we do ministry, that this group doesn't necessarily need it, but this group needs it because we have associated health with wealth or health with resources. 
And what God is, is saying is like, don't look at the outward appearance. Just because the house is big and the car is nice doesn't mean that they don't need me. And in the same way, just because it doesn't seem like they have it all together doesn't mean that I'm not present. Which is the problem why we struggle with missions so much, because most of the time we go into the mission field assuming that we're bringing God to them as opposed to recognizing that God is already present there. So too many times we're making judgments off of physical appearance and those judgments uh, um, are shaping what we're doing. And God is telling Samuel, stop in your tracks because you are making a mistake. I'm looking upon the heart. And so it's God who defines who is worthy and what is worthy. Because the next king has to be different. Verses 8 through 13 then say this. So after Eliab has been rejected, it says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass by before, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Since then, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And, and he said, oh, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping to the sheep. Have any of you ever experienced what it felt like to be rejected? I have. Right, I, I remember in sixth grade, I had a crush on this girl named Kevia Grays, and I found the coolest R&B song, and I caught up on the, on the phone, and I sang the song to her in my best, like, R&B, like, Michael Jackson impersonation voice, and I said, like, hey, will you be my girlfriend? And she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I was heartbroken. I felt that rejection. But brothers and sisters, there's, there's no rejection like the rejection that you feel when you feel it from your family. This, this wasn't some outside source excluding David. This was his own dad. So, so, so imagine the prophet coming to town and saying like, hey, one of your sons is going to be king. And you parade all the other brothers in front. This isn't it. This isn't it. And, and, and it took for Samuel to say like, Because Samuel knew that God had told him that one of Jesse's sons was going to be king. So something, somebody was missing. And it took for for Samuel to ask Jesse, like, is is this it? For him to remember, like, oh, yeah, there's the other, there's, there's the boy. There's the one that's tending sheep. Like, is that him? And, and, And scripture says... That David was ruddy. In other words, David was chubby. Like David was a little fat. I feel like he was describing me, right? It said that David, David, David was ruddy. He had pretty eyes, and he was good, good to look at. But David was tending sheep, and it was his time with the sheep, doing the ordinary, the mundane, the feeding of the sheep, the cleaning of the sheep, the protecting of the sheep, the sharpening his skills with the slingshot and the smooth stones that would give him some of the tools that he needed to be the king that God was calling him to be. Yet because he was doing 
something ordinary, doing something that nobody really wanted to do because he wasn't tall, tall and physical like the rest of his brothers. His own father didn't even think he was king material. We go back to look forward. I think the thing that we have to recognize is sometimes the decisions that we make are birthed out of the painful places that we don't want to acknowledge. I think it would be doing ourselves a disservice and a disservice to even David to not understand that on that moment, on that roof, when he should have been at war, but he decided to hang back and send his men ahead of him, when he was walking around the palace, looking across the palace, and he sees Bathsheba, and he sends for her, and he calls her to him to look at that moment as if it was separate from the day that he was chosen to be king and his own father didn't think he was worthy to not look at how that one moment, that, that piece of pain shaped iniquity and pain in him that would change him. Because all the decisions that we make are connected. We can't compartmentalize pain. We can't be unhealthy in one place and then say we're healthy in another. So if there's uncovered, unhealed pain in one area of our life, then it affects everything. So as we keep going, my challenge for you today is to ask yourself, what are those painful places? What are those things that we've swept under the rug? What, what are those conversations that I need to have with my parents or with my siblings? What are those chains that need to be broken with me so that they don't continue after me? Let's pray. Lord, we say thank you. We know that you are a chain breaker, that you are a cycle breaker. And I pray right now as we prepare to go to the table that you give each and every one of us the strength and the courage that we need to deal with our baggage. Yes, it may uncover some tough stuff, but we're doing it for the sake of our children and our children's children and your church and the church you've called us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen.